and welcome to episode 92 of the Cood Street Podcast. This morning we're delighted to welcome Michael Deirdre to the podcast to discuss Jane Wolfe and no doubt many other interesting things to do with science fiction as literature. Good morning, Michael, and welcome. Jonathan, pleasure to be with you and, and Gary tonight. Hello, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan, and... Um and hello, Michael. Some, I've wanted to have you on this podcast for some time, and now we have a couple of good excuses. Um, one well, is uh, I'm really honored to be part of this. It's 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 always a treat to talk about science fiction, particularly with uh, two of the most knowledgeable people in the field. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think one of the things that you've done for science fiction with the uh, the Washington Post, and I believe now American Scholar, is that correct? Well, I, you know, I, I worked primarily for the Washington Post for the past um, 30 years now. Uh, but over the years, I've written for all sorts of different periodicals and magazines. Uh, and I just recently began a, a weekly mini-essay for the, the American Scholar on Friday. It's called Browsings. It's the um, successor to a, a feature that William Zinzer, the guy who wrote On Writing Well, conducted for them for I guess a couple of years and he's now retired and I was asked if I would I would uh, wander on each week uh, about one subject or another and I'm sure science fiction fantasy will eventually be part of that but um, no I've, I've you know, I try to write about um, SF uh, regularly uh, both for the post and for other places uh, um, I, I did write a long piece for the American scholar about uh, uh, John Crowley's uh, Egypt sequence, and mm-hmm. I frequently write about uh, uh, sort of older classics of science fiction fantasy for the online Barnes and Noble Review and for other magazines and periodicals. Um, besides being involved with um, uh, you know typical SF fandom, I'm also a a member of the North American Jules Verne Society and the um, the uh, the Ghost Story Society, so I've I've interest in in older literatures of the fantastic or fantastica, as John Clute would say. Well, yeah, I, I, one of the things that you also remember the Baker Street Irregulars, am I correct? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, and the P.G. Woodhouse Society too, for that matter. Uh, my my book. Uh, the book on Conan Doyle is uh, part of a, a series that Princeton does called Writers on Writers, and they asked me if I would, uh, mm. well, in the series, writers talk about a favorite author who, who was influential in their own own, own development, and um, they asked me if I'd do one, and I suggested a number of very high-minded uh, figures like Stundall or Montaigne, and uh, but once I mentioned I was part of the Baker Street Regulars, they said, "Nope, it's got to be Conan Doyle." Then uh, they they that was figured they would they would ride to some some greater number of sales on on the uh, coattails of Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, and you know, perhaps one they were right. I don't know. The book seems to have done reasonably well. Have you seen those movies, by the way? Yeah, I've seen both movies. Um, uh, they're not the ideal. For me, introduction to Holmes for a young person, but they're a lot of fun. They're, you know, obviously a kind of a gritty steampunk Alan Moorish take on on, on Sherlock Holmes, 
And so that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly, you know, lots of explosions and they're fun to watch. But, um, my hopes remains more of the, well, of, you know, the classic homes would be the first two of the, uh, Basil Rathbone films, which are really quite fun. And, and I was very fond of the Jeremy Brett series as well. What about the new series, the new BBC series, which oh the oh yeah the BBC oh those are great. Uh, I, thought they, I was I, I, I thought it was utterly convincing that if Holmes were around today, he would have. A yeah, website. I mean they 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 I mean they translate they translated so well. I I I played with the little joke at the you know long ago with uh, you know when when Watson and Holmes first meet, Holmes takes a look at this uh, soldier back from the wars, and he says. Uh, you have been in Afghanistan, I perceive, and obviously uh, it translates perfectly well to today. And right. uh, in the series, I believe he says he looks at him and says Iraq or Afghanistan. And instead of instead of sending telegrams, home sends text messages, and the, and and the, the episodes are are full of little in jokes, but um, they work very well. I you know I think the series is a well. I've only seen the first set of three. I haven't seen the uh, yeah, have the new them. new ones. But uh, I thought the first three were terrific, uh, although I was slightly troubled, and I thought they did go a little bit downhill. I thought the first was the best. And uh, I know that some people have been a little disturbed by uh, the second set with um, uh, Irene Adler being portrayed as a, uh, a dominatrix. But um, it'll be fun to see. One of the things I enjoyed about on Sherlock about 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 on Conan Doyle, I, possibly because there's a sense I think among science fiction readers that that mystery readers have owned Conan Doyle for over a century now, and yet there are important classics in science fiction that he's one of which has its centennial this year. One of which, The Lost World, is I think an important book in the history of science fiction. Uh, and you do pay attention to that. You pay attention to his horror stories, to his ghost stories, um, uh, and, and, well, and really acknowledge that there's more more to Conan Doyle than Sherlock Holmes. Well, in, in fact, that was part of my uh, intent in the book. Uh, although I begin with my discovery of the Hound of the Baskervilles as a kid, and I am with, and in the middle I talk about the the activities of the Baker Street Irregulars, and I uh, mm. and I come back to Holmes at the very end. In between, I wanted to introduce uh, uh, Conan Doyle's other books and writings to to to, to readers. I mean, he was a, he's a he was a superb writer of uh, Victorian ghost stories, one of the best. I mean, the Captain of the Pole Star is is just an amazingly haunting story, in haunting in in, in both the, the usual senses of the word. And um, he was an important figure in in multiple areas of literature. And of course, uh, we're most interested tonight in, in the science fiction. But the, the the Lost World introduces George Edward Challenger, who was in fact uh, Conan Doyle's own favorite of his characters, more mm-hmm. so than, than Sherlock Holmes or or even a, a very colorful uh, figure named Brigadier Gerard, who was kind of half Inspector Clouseau and half Flashman. Um, but uh, Challenger, he dressed up as Challenger. He 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 did photographs included in um, pieces about the book where he you know he looks he looks the part of the the professor, and um, you know, drew on scientific knowledge of the time and wrote a kind of uh, 
I'm going to say Jules Vernian uh, science fiction novel in that uh, he did uh, um, make use of contemporary speculations and discoveries going on in uh, South America. And of course, in, in subsequent books, he was even much more science fictional than, than in The Lost World, in that uh, which you could you could really call a kind of um, lost world romance, although rather haggard. Uh, but uh, the Poison Belt, we have uh, the Earth mm-hmm. pass- passing through a cloud of cosmic dust that is uh, going to destroy all of uh, um, organic life, uh, human, you know, animals and, and people. Uh, when the Earth, uh, when the world screamed, you have uh, the notion of a sentient uh, planet. Uh, you have the disintegration machine. I mean, he's anywhere people, you know, you can disintegrate uh, people and reassemble them. And he's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's, he's, he's interested in science. And uh, you also see that in uh, lots of his uh, short stories that aren't uh, typically thought of as science fiction, but more as, uh, you know, supernatural or weird tales. He's, he plays with uh, the science of the time. But, of course, he was a doctor. He was, uh, he was, he was a uh, scientific mind. His Holmes himself was based on, a, on one of... Uh, Conan Doyle's teachers at Edinburgh, a famous doctor named Joseph Bell, Bell. Yeah. and uh, so he 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 had a lot of a um, uh, lot to uh, contribute to the field in those uh, early, you know, early days of um, H.G. Wells and after. I think you can also argue that the Lost World is has had. I mean, it's, it's, it's unfortunate probably that most people hear that title and think of. Of Michael Crichton, although I'm sure that Michael Crichton was meaning to uh, give an acknowledgement to Doyle in titling um, that novel that way. But The Lost World was one of the first great silent science fiction epics. So first Willis O'Brien, before Willis O'Brien made King Kong, he was making The Dinosaurs in the Lost World. And even the remake, this I may be the only person who still believes this, but even in that much despised remake, uh, with Michael Rennie, which even C.S. Lewis dissed. I thought Claude Rains was pretty good as Professor Challenger. <laughs> you know, I, 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 when I was working on that chapter, I went and saw rewatched the old silent version of The Lost World, which mm-hmm. is really pretty good. And it plays up the, uh, the comic relationship between um, Challenger and uh, Professor Summer, Summerhill, Summervale, uh, mm-hmm. Summerton. Um, and uh you know my my memories of the later remake were are mostly dominated by images of Jill St. John and I I decided I would just let those remain as very fond memories of uh, of my youth and I didn't rewatch the movie but uh I might catch it again one of these days and see well, how it's doing it's very blessed I I do remember reading cuz CS Lewis was alive when that came out and I remember reading something he wrote about a perfectly irrelevant young woman in tight pants. <laughs> well, you had to have that. Well, think of Journey to the Center of the Earth. With, uh, they, they also stuck a woman in, in that, and, uh, along with Pat Boone, of course. That was a musical, uh, yeah. And uh, Actually, yeah, that's a pretty good movie, I think, Journey to the Center of the Earth. I think that stands up quite well. But of course, you know, besides... besides Besides Conan Doyle, this is also the, the big year for Edgar Rice Burroughs. Um, it's a, it's a and, centennial, uh, and this is one of the things I wanted to explore. Uh, in 1912, it, it, saw the is, publication of The Lost World, and it's a serialization of Under the Moons of Mars, which became A Princess of Mars, which has now apparently become John Carter. 
uh, with Michael Chabon involved in the screenplay. Uh, and I, I think none of the three of us, am I right, have seen the movie yet. No, I, I haven't seen the movie at all yet. Uh, um, the advanced word has been sort of divided. I gather that um, mainstream critics tend to have you know, disliked it and not thought much of it at all, whereas uh, on, on various uh, science fictional uh, blogs and chat groups, um, people have uniformly come away with uh, very positive feelings about the movie and liked it a lot. Um, I don't know. This may be maybe this is a sort of a divide between uh, you know uh, mundanes and fans and how they they, they take the uh, the film. But I hope to go see it tomorrow and uh, find Let out what's what. I wonder how many fans these days have actually read Edgar Rice Burroughs, though. Uh, I wonder. I, I I I wrote a piece today about uh, Burroughs and the John Carter novels, partly because I had never read them as a boy. I read all the Tarzan books and uh-huh. loved Tarzan. It was very influential, but um, they were they had been reprinted, and you could they, my my this, the public libraries would not stock Burroughs because they were thought to be sub literature. Uh, Mm. Pulp trash, but um, there were all these Gloss and Dunlap reprints that you would find in department stores for a dollar forty-nine, and I occasionally could spring for them. But or, or sometimes I would stand at the at the shelves and read one an entire afternoon. But the um, the John Carter books um, weren't uh, weren't widely available until the sixties. I was born in forty-eight, um, so by the time that uh, the paperbacks came out in with the Frazetta covers and Roy Krenkel covers. Roy Krenkel. I was already interested in contemporary. I was interested in contemporary SF, and these seem like you know old-fashioned planetary romances, and I had no need to go back to that. It would be like going back to reading, you know, the Skylark of Space or something. Mm. Uh, when I was already reading, you know, J.G. Ballard, um, so I missed them. But I thought that uh, you know. I, that it would, this would be a good opportunity to uh, to discover them, in part because I'm I'm very interested in the pe- period between roughly 1870-1930 as the as the great age of storytelling, um, and so um, I did read them. Um, they are they're certainly pulpish. The writing isn't distinguished, but he does move things right along. And uh, I read the first three of them, which are a kind of complete trilogy. Mm-hmm. Although there are eight or nine more, and um, I thought they were, you know, you know, given the, uh, the reservations one needs to make for some sorts of older books, a lot of fun to read. They're not of the quality of writing that you get in in Conan Doyle, whose writing no. needs no 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 allowances whatsoever. It's he's he's, he's a superb writer. But um, what really impressed me with Burroughs is the fact that he was one of those figures, Raymond Chandler is another one, who only came to writing, uh, pulp writing in this case, in both their cases, um, although Chandler was a much, you know, was a great writer in his way. Um, late in life, Burroughs had failed at everything. Um, he needed money to support his, his, his family, which had two kids and one to come. And he thought he could write a better adventure novel than those he was reading in all story. 
And so right. in the course of 1912, and in between February and summer of, of 1912 at All Story, we had the uh, Princess of Mars, under its original title, Under the, Under the Moons of Mars, appear. Uh, then he wrote, then the, guy, the editor there asked him for an historical novel, which he wrote and had rejected, revised, and was rejected again. And he said, well, let me write the story I really want to write next. And so in, in November, the same year, he, he, in an all-in-one-issue of All Story, came out Tarzan of the Apes. Then the next year he wrote... Um, mm -hmm. Uh, the first of, uh, you know, At the Earth's Core, and the sequels mm -hmm. to Tarzan, and uh, and the uh, and just had an astonishing run. In, in, in a couple of years, he'd written all his, his major major books, and by the, you know, within seven or eight years, he was a, a multimillionaire and was buying vast estates in California and uh, starting to repeat himself. But uh, uh, amazing, amazing story. But the one thing they both have in common is that they were both multi-genre writers. I mean, we talk a lot about these days about people writing in different genres. We talk about uh, China Mieville's uh, project to write a novel in each genre. And I guess the Iron Council was his Western. Uh, and, and these people at the very beginning of the genre era were, were doing the same thing. I mean, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote a novel, of, a novel called The Monster Men, which is just a flat-out horror novel. Um, he did science yeah. novels, fantasy novels. He tried to do historical novels, and Conan Doyle was all over the map, also. Well, yeah, yeah, Conan Doyle really practiced all the all the uh, forms of literature he could. He didn't want to be thought of as just as a an entertainer. Uh, uh, he wanted to be a public intellectual and felt certain obligations that way. And he did write novels about contemporary life. He has a uh, a novel that I mentioned in this book of, of mine uh, called The Tragedy of the Carrasco about a group of uh, Western tourists on, in, in, uh, in the Middle East who are kidnapped by essentially terrorists, uh, Islamic terrorists of the day, mm -hmm. and uh, are going to be killed unless they convert to Islam. And he examines all sorts of uh, issues that are still with us today in that book. He has a, he has a novel... Of, uh, of about uh, of feminists of the day, he has uh, all the young married couples and their, their problems. And, and one, quite shockingly, uh, in a duet, the young husband's uh, former mistress appears and says that if uh, she wants to take up their their love affair again, even though he's married, it says if he doesn't, he's going. She's going to tell his wife all about him and ruin his life. And uh, he has to deal with this. And so he, he was a remarkable, uh, varied writer, and we, we do him an injustice to think of him only as the uh, creator of, of Sherlock Holmes. Just a quick question of you. Uh, I read the Mars books when I was, what, 11 or 12. I stumbled across them in a second-hand bookstore here in Perth mm -hmm. on, a, a, on a terribly hot summer's day, so I always think of them as very summery stories, and I think they're perhaps because they're products of the time real boy stories, but I was just looking, are you as taken aback or surprised as I am to see John Carter and A Princess of Mars coming out from the Library of America? Well, it's not coming out in the Library of America, uh, Princess of Mars, I don't think. Yeah, it is. I mean, oh, yeah. It is? What? Yeah. Well, this, is, uh, this is news to me. There is, I mean, Gary obviously is, is editing the... Uh, the uh, the two volumes of uh, 
uh, science fiction of the 50s, but I didn't know that right. they had planned to bring out Burroughs. In, 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 in. Is this, in fact, the, the case, Gary? Do you know? Their plan um, was to do a I mean, uh, um, centenary edition of uh, Martian novels. I don't know. I don't know what happened with it. I know that we were trying to get actually. Uh, they were trying to get somebody to write an introduction to it. Don't I didn't see it on their fourth schedule. Uh, so I don't know. Bought it. I mean, it's well. I mean, you know, you, these. You, I mean, Jonathan, you may well, you know, may well be right. You may eventually, uh, or perhaps already is in in, in the. Uh, uh, you know the process of coming out because I mean the Library of America is, I think, sensibly although some people are are shocked by this, expanding its original um, purpose and going beyond the obvious canonical American writers and starting to embrace those writers of of, of genre fiction, popular fiction, and of uh, things that are often marginalized. Because they have, in fact, you know, influenced our and shaped our imaginations as much as uh, any of the more uh, traditional uh, classics. And you know, so uh, I do see that uh, for, for this uh, spring of bringing out David Goodis, one of the, the great uh, noir writers, a, mm-hmm. a, a volume of four or five of his his novels, uh, and um, there there's obviously. Um, going to be uh, a lot more of that in the years to come. I'm sure the, uh, the, the science fiction of the 50s will, will uh, be a success, as the uh, Philip K. Dick volumes have. And um, you know, we'll be doing, uh, you know, someone will be uh, uh, overseeing the, the decades to come. Or the decades earlier. I mean, the, the science fiction of the 1940s. Or the decades earlier, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean if... Uh, I, you know, one one reason I'd like to uh, to 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 talk about and read and go back to uh, figures like Burroughs and Conan Doyle's is because um, I do think of them as, in, in a sense, the field's classic books. They are they provide uh, well, certainly someone like Wells or, or Verne does. Uh, you know, the templates, the patterns, the uh, the the master tropes that uh, later writers will. Will, will develop or work against or offer variations on. But if you don't know those original writers, if you don't know those books that are, uh, have, have already, uh, you know, shaped the field up toward the present, you're going to miss out on a lot. And you, I think that's you, true. You just... No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm, I'm very glad you brought that up because there is a passage I, I, I marked. I, I, I've got your uh, book on Kindle, so I can make bookmarks. And one of the bookmarks has to do with a point that you make uh, in on Conan Doyle that um, that during in one generation, you say uh, there appeared most of our pattern establishing masterpieces of science fiction, horror, fantasy, and adventure between 1885 and 1925. And you list King Solomon's Mines, Kidnap, The Prisoner of Zenda. The Time Machine, Dracula, Cam, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Five Children and It, Peter Pan, uh, Dorian Gray, The Man Who Was Thursday, Tarzan, Flatland, The 39 Steps, uh, M.R. James' Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, and The War of the Worlds, and, and on and on and on. Is that, is, is that a point that you'd like to pursue, that really what we think of as the plot forms of the modern popular fantastic genres, at least, were formed during that 40-year period, or at least solidified? Well, I, I do think that's so. 
Um, in fact, um, I went. I had a, had a book idea to, that I wanted to write about. What I is like, the phrase I had: the great age of storytelling. Um, the uh, the critic Roger Lancelin Green, um, father of the very distinguished Conan Doyle scholar Richard Lancelin Green, who who died a couple of years ago under mysterious circumstances. Um, he always called it the great age of, of storytellers, uh, or a phrase very similar to that. But I think, you know, it's certainly the case. Um, last spring, I taught a course at the University of Maryland, which is near where I live. I live just outside of Washington, D.C., called the classic wow. adventure novel, 18, 1885 to, to 1915, 30 years, and taught 10 of those books that, that you just mentioned, Gary. And the course was so, so popular and liked uh, that they invited me to, to come back and teach a, a, a sequel. So I'm now doing the modern adventure novel, 1917 to 1973. I begin with The Princess of Mars and then went on to uh, Captain Blood, a Georgia Hare novel called These Old Shades. We just finished Red Harvest. And next week we're doing At the Mountains of Madness, followed by uh, Coffin for Demetrius and... Um, the Star is My Destination, and uh, Chester Himes' uh, uh, crime novel called The Real Cool Killers, True Grit, and then finishing with The Princess Bride, which is both an adventure novel and a kind of commentary on the adventure novel, a parody of it. Um, so there, there, I, I really think that these, these books are, 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 are wonderful well, you know, from a, from a university point of view, uh, teaching tools, because as my, the students in my class told me, you know, that they, reading these books made them realize why they'd become English majors in the first place, that they, was, they were fun to read, as opposed to some of the uh, other books that they'd been reading in their classes or the, or the undue emphasis they had sometimes in, encountered on, on theory and cultural studies and the like. Um, but... Um, but really, they, these, these, these novels, I mean, they, you know, uh, shape our imaginations, as I said. And, and they, they stay with us, both as, as comfort books, as um, uh, places of solace. Of, uh, it, 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 it is strange to me, in fact, that, you know, when I was, I was young, I read a lot of fantasy, science fiction, and all, all this sort of mystery, mm. mysteries and, and the kind of book we're talking about. And then throughout my 20s and 30s, um, although I, I, I again started to become interested in science fiction in my late 20s when I came to book world, I was really interested in experimental literature, innovative writing of all sorts, the, the mm -hmm. hardest kinds of books you could find in fiction. And I think there's a kind of natural development in this as readers that we, as you see in, in, in almost all the arts, as you get older, you tend to value suddenly even simpler things, uh, you know, a more direct expression, and that uh, of, of, of heartfelt and uh, you know, aspects of human life through art. And suddenly, the, the those more ambitious books start to seem cluttery and self-important and overdone somehow, and it becomes harder to go back to them. Whereas the thought of going back to the earlier books seems 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 very welcoming, mm -hmm. and, and you find yourself returning to them again later in life, uh, both for the pleasure of it and I think for uh, for uh, you know a, a different kind of understanding. 
I know, it's 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 interesting, and it's one aspect of growing growing older as a reader that I've 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 been surprised in myself. Um, but uh, so it seems, at least in my case. I think one of the things that's interesting about um, that approach to storytelling is, is you're right. There's a sense of wanting to get back to the story. There's a, there, there's a sense of which I, I went through the, a similar kind of development that you did. And one of the writers, and one of the things that I thought was an interesting discovery, uh, for me at least, is, is a writer that, that you, Michael, and I are both celebrating a week from tomorrow, uh, Gene Wolfe. When you realize that you can you can find that storytelling um, meme or whatever it is that the, the, the thing that attracted you to a story in something which is also very complex and very multi-layered and very multivalent um, and, and, and in a sense you you can now in the modern world of science fiction and fantasy and to some extent in the modern world of mainstream literature you can find books that do all that that tell a terrific story and an inch below the surface of that terrific story. It's a very complex narrative, which is what Gene does over and over again. Well, you know, unquestionably with Gene, and uh, I mean, for me, uh, I read all four of the the initial Book of the New Sun volumes in in about three days. I I uh, I was working at Bookworld as I was was there as an editor there for 25 years, and one of my my duties as one of my my baby was the uh, science fiction fantasy column, and uh, we had reviewed the individual volumes up to, up to the fourth one, and on the, and the fourth one, Citadel of the Autark, I had John Clute write about it, and I had persuaded my masters to put it on the front page of of uh, Bookworld to post. Mm-hmm. It was first time that a science fiction novel was a standalone on the front, and I decided I would interview Gene as, as inside as part mm-hmm. of the jump. So I, I sat down and read the books. Um, and at first I was going to sort of just skim them enough to, to ask some intelligent questions. But I started the book, and that that serene, majestic tone that he has of, you know, Severian telling his story that uh, just draws you in. And then the fact that... Um, you know, it's this is this this colorful, gaudy world being you know transmuted through this beautifully august and stately prose. Uh, it, it just blew me away. Um, I you know I you know I was I was used to I, I admired science fiction novels for all sorts of reasons, mm-hmm. but with with you know with few exceptions, they were the the the, the prose was, was 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 faster. It was more where it was more um, not exactly pulpish, exactly, but you know, Bester writes great prose, but it's not the same kind as Jean's. You had mm-hmm. you had people like Vance who had who had you know clearly had, had, had learned from Clark Ashton Smith and elsewhere to yeah. write you know uh, sentences that sounded as though you know Gibbon could have written them. Uh, mm-hmm. And Jean took this even further because you had this 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 sense that. Well, that's the story was there mainly on the surface inside this gorgeous prose. But for Gene, mm. things were, were were obviously happening. You know, the subtext was as important as the text, and it right. took you a while to realize what what you know what was that there was so much more going on than met the you know the the eye initially, and there were so many mysteries that. Uh, that were apparently unresolved, but that if you were, you know, 
you read closely enough, well enough, guessed cleverly enough, you could figure them out. And uh, and he he brought to bear all the tricks of uh, of, of high modernism, in and to to create a work that had a had a kind of profound religious sensibility coupled with a terrific adventure story. It was, you know, it was just, I mean, he's, you know, I've I've always said that, you know, he is one of the the, the great American writers of our time. It's, it's, uh, we we once had a piece about him in Book World where, you know, the headline was, I didn't actually write it, I was out of the office with something, is is Gene Wolfe the greatest American writer you've never heard of? You know, in the way that people do those sorts of things. Of course, a lot of us have heard of him, but more of the world should be aware of him. Um, and uh, and there are there are, there are certainly you know a good you know ha- you know you know more you know you know half a dozen or more other science fiction writers uh, now at work and certainly in the past who are are similar at least as as you know artists of great complexity and uh, and uh, you know who who merit the kind of attention that uh, well, you, uh, yeah. mainstream writers traditionally got, but. The interesting thing is that we have, we're now happily living in a period, which, which, uh, I, which you have, uh, Gary, have written about, of evaporating genres. You know that uh, to use your your, your book's you. title, where all these things are these these barriers, these artificial barriers between between high and low, and different kinds of of uh, forms of fiction are are breaking down, so that we have. Have you know Pulitzer Prize winning, best-selling, and imaginative novels like Michael Shaben, who really comes out of a, 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 a background of science fiction and comics and uh, the world we know and loves these books. We have someone like uh, Neil Gaiman who's crossing over from the other side into a greater uh, authorship. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, you know Jonathan Leatham. I remember when Jonathan was the secretary of the Philip K. Dick Society, he used to send me little mimeographed uh, newsletters. Uh, and these people have become important major writers of our time. Whereas in the you know, and, and they have uh, they've shown that you know that you you don't need to you know be ghettoized any longer because you are interested and fascinated and use the tropes of science fiction. Just as Cormac McCarthy uses those of of, of you know of, of post-Holocaust uh, SF or the Western in, in his various novels. I mean, these things are, are 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 you know it's it's you know you've written you've written about this you know this better than I do. Yeah. But it is it is it is it is it is, a, it is one of the gratifying developments of our time that um, that some that people are 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 looking beyond the. Um, the standard novel of, of you know of adultery in Connecticut as the definition right. of what uh, contemporary literature should be. Well, I, I, I um, think you you deserve some credit for this because the Washington Post has been much more interesting in terms of its treatment of genre fiction than most other uh, literary review venues in the United States. Is that well? I, I you know I, I think that's true. Certainly during the you know book world doesn't exist per se anymore. Uh, it was dissolved into the regular section, but during the years that I I worked there, I was very much um, a champion of urging people to read beyond the bestseller list, to discover the great books and works of, you know, of the past and in translation, and to explore you know the 
genres like um, fantasy and SF and children's books. For 10 years, I reviewed children's books once a, once a month and got to review the, these wonderful books of uh, Chris Van Allsburgs and William Joyce and Daniel Pinkwater. And the, mm-hmm. the, these, these, are, these, are, uh, these are writers that anyone can read for pleasure who are great artists. And the same is true in, 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 in crime fiction now. Crime fiction has become you know, the, the realist novel of our time. And yeah. at that, you know, it, it, the only, my only regret at Bookworld at some point was that we had this science fiction and fantasy column every month, and I got the, a lot of the, the major writers and uh, figures in the field to write for the write it for the column. But uh, I did, you know, was troubled that I was still essentially ghettoizing the genre. But there was the only way I could, uh, you know, get uh, allow you know cover more than you know. Well, well, one novel, I yeah. could get four or five books in there. But what I would do is that after, you know, somebody like, um, well, think we mentioned Peter Straub earlier, who's coming to, to help honor Gene Wolfe next week. Yeah. Um, Peter, I asked to review, naturally, horror fiction, and he did a review or two for me, and we got to talking on the phone, and he said, you know, my real passion in life is jazz. So I asked Peter Stroud to review jazz from then on. Absolutely. I, had asked, I, I asked Tom Dish to write about poetry, not about. You know, I had, you know, I had people when I once I knew, you know, Elmore Leonard, which genre slightly, once told me because he'd been reviewing a couple of crime novels. I said, you know, I really think of myself as a stylist, as someone rather than as a crime novelist. So I said, okay, how about reviewing Anita Bruckner? She's a stylist, and he did. He wrote a wonderful <laughs> review of Anita Bruckner. I mean, this so that I was hoping to try and break down, in a sense, the the the, the barriers for for reviewers as well. That just because you're Elmore Leonard doesn't mean you can only write about crime fiction. You can write about mm. stylists. Um, then, you know, I, you know, I've been away from being an editor now for seven or eight years, and uh, I took the post-first round of buyouts. I was the youngest person eligible because I wanted to write more and do other things, and I've done them, but I I do kind of miss the the pleasures of being an editor and and getting to call up people and talk to them about books they like and uh, and be in some ways more actively engaged with uh, the publishing world than I am now, even though I write a lot for Mm. places. But there is a there's kind of influence in being an editor, and you can discover, for example, that there are a number of mainstream writers who have passions for genre writers, like Joyce Carol Oates seems to love Lovecraft, or you have genre. Oh yeah, writers, yeah, yeah. Like like Elmore. Well, she's you, go ahead. Yeah, there there are all sorts of, of people of, of, of this kind, and it was always a, a you know great pleasure to to, to discover. I remember we met, I called up. Um, uh, Angus Wilson to review Michael Moorcock because I knew that Wilson had, had admired Moorcock and wow. he, he reviewed one of the Moorcock books. I had uh, I had J.G. Ballard write about William Burroughs, you know, I knew because I knew that they from earlier things that they had admired and learned from them. These are obvious mm-hmm. kind of connections, but they weren't obvious to the the public at large, um, and. So that was that was that was fun. It was always always <laughs> the best part of the job was getting to talk to uh, people one admired. Because when you work for a newspaper like the Washington Post, almost anyone will take your phone call. <laughs> That's true, but not, 
But is that is that as true as it used to be? I'm, I wonder if literary, like I said, you're you're in a you're in a unique position. You can write belletristic essays. You can write a book like on Condor. You can write, but my sense is that the what we used to call literary journalism is disappearing or possibly disappearing into the web. Um, there's a thing going well, on in Chicago. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I I do worry about that. Um, uh, from you know the well, I mean, people have you know talked about the demise of literary journalism for a long time. You know, Edmund Wilson was our last man of letters, sort of thing. And you know, there's there's certain kinds of truths to that. Um, and certainly, with the rise of, of of the internet and blogging and uh, multiple voices online. Uh, the impact of a single, of the, the impact of, of a handful of newspapers and various critics, I think has been diminished and will, you know, is, I don't know if it will disappear entirely or, or, you know, just somehow morph in the way that the, you know, the web keeps continuing to, you know, to morph and surprise us. For me, of course, I, you know, I, I live by my pen, so I, I need to always find places that will pay me some money to get, right. you know, to, to work and, um, online, it's hard to find anywhere that, that where there's there's any kind of compensation involved. There's for magazines and newspapers, you still get paid. Um, my my own my own my own kind of writing, though, is um, well, it's 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 both, I guess, rather like like blogs in some senses, because I've always tried to be a relatively personal writer. I think of myself. Not so much as a as a critic or a literary uh, theoretician of, of 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 these things. I mean, um, you know, John Clute is a real theoretician of of science fiction of genres. He has a he has a he has a critical intelligence that uh, I can only admire. I'm a good appreciator. I'm you know I'm pretty widely read. I can see connections, and I'm a, I'm an enthusiast. I'm. A, I can I can I, I can I can bring people to the books, and so I, I do embrace the idea of being um, a bookman, of being a, a, a middleman in, in that sense, mm-hmm. and and saying you know that um, you know here's something you would enjoy. You might not think so, but if you know you, you read on, you'll see that it's, you you might want to give it a try, and I felt that that was an you know an honorable kind of thing to do. And because um, I mean, I I, uh, I have this I have this, this you know <laughs> horribly scholarly background, a PhD, and you know done and and uh, done also you know complet and medieval mm-hmm. studies, European Romanticism. I wrote a dissertation on Stendhal and all that, um, and so that I have a, a wide range of reference that I. But I never try to be um, condescending, or I don't. I, I I just try to 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 show that you know, knowing things, reading books, discovering all kinds of books is fun, is exciting, and that mm. a whole area of literature that that you know, people have disdained or have ignored, whether it's you know, romance novels or science fiction or um, crime fiction. Can often, you know, has got writers as wonderful as any you will ever read, 
if you only uh, look around a little bit, give it a try. And um, so that's 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 the role I tried to try to 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 you know carve out for myself. Um, what troubles me about the internet is that um, all these things are 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 there's so much that the the upshot is to for us to lose a kind of kind of the core places. In NSF, you still have, you know, you have locus. So people turn every month to see what Gary Wolf is reviewing or what uh, you know, the other reviewers in locus are writing about. And, uh, but if you just rely on, on the, on, on, online, but, 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 but even if you did that locus, you would see, you know, in the past, you might read locus, but you might also read the New York Times book reviewer yeah. or Harper's or Atlantic or the New Yorker. Whereas now people are, are, are using the, uh, the web just to, to follow Really, really, that was narrowly specific interests, and I think the the idea of that there is a common ground of culture and knowledge and, and understanding is 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 in danger of being being lost. The other uh, the other aspect about um, online reading and, and writing is that I, I do think it encourages um, skimming. I think that the whole essence of, of a computer world is, is speed, quickness, you know, jumping from link mm -hmm. to link, looking for the answer to a question or a problem, whereas reading a book uh, is a kind of sustained act of attention, wants you to slow down, you know, have a pencil in your hand, mark up things. And I, and I, I feel that um, this is counterintuitive when you're using a, a computer screen. I could be wrong because I grew up with print books and I only use you know computers really to write or do email. But I've seen the way kids kids use use their their iPads and they're like, and you know you know you don't you don't feel that they're engaged deeply with the text when they're when they're they're sitting in front of screens. But but we're getting far afield from from, from all sorts of things. Or, I will say one one thing that comes across in uh, back to on Conan Doyle, which I admire you for enormously, and it reminds me of Severian in Gene Wolfe, uh, because Severian can remember things from his past, and he can remember how he remembered these things when he was the later stage in his life. And you have an astonishing memory for what you were reading and what you thought about it when you were 17 years old. And I, for the life of me, have been trying to reconstruct what my mental state was at 17, and I'm afraid it's gone. I do have I do have a good memory for the for my past and the, how I felt about things. I've often thought you know thought it's because um, you know I've, I've been overly retrospective all my life. I remember, <laughs> I remember I had, I had friend, I had friends or you say you know you, you know when I was at the college I used to talk about high school. When I was in high school I talk about junior high school and now of course you know that I'm older I talk about being you know 20 or something. Um, but the, but my mind keeps sifting over these things, going back to them because they were important experiences for me, and so they remain they remain fresh. Um, I, I I really am, you know. Although I you know I think I live a, a, a fairly you know a, you know ordinary normal life and have had you know, uh, you know girlfriends, wife, family, and all that sort of thing. I'm really a very bookish person, and, and books mm -hmm. are essentially the, the thread that runs through my life. And the way I, I when I look back at my life, I, I, I associate it as uh, periods and uh, times and places with the things I was reading. And um, 
and moments that were particularly special uh, remain you know, vivid to me uh, even now. And uh, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I, I just uh, well, I wrote a memoir. I wrote a memoir called An Open Book, and it's organized about around discovering reading because I, I grew up in a in a working class steel town where nobody read, and discovering books was part of the mm -hmm. part of the, the game, part of the pleasure. And uh, and I would when I wrote the book, I, I didn't use any any notes or material from from you know old scrapbooks or anything. I really just sort of I went off and squirreled myself away for a couple of weeks and got into a zone where I was uh, reliving my past and going back mm. through it. It's it's. Um, if you ever, um, a couple of years back, I, I, I wrote a long piece for the New York Review of Books about Casanova's memoirs, and mm -hmm. this is these, these are one this is a wonderful book. I mean, it's a real long book. But at the end, you know, Casanova had was was an adventurer. It wasn't just this you know astonishing Don Juan and, and, and self mythologizer. He was a he traveled all over Europe, had all sorts of you know, he was in Istanbul, he was in Russia, everywhere. But when at the toward the uh, what he thought was the end of his life when he was about you know younger than we are now, uh, he'd become a librarian. He felt his, his his romantic life was over. He decided to sit down and rewrite his memoirs in order to relive his 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 his, his, his adventures, his excitement. Mm -hmm. And he really does it in the same way. I think that uh, people who who write these sorts of uh, reminiscences as I have, uh, you can really go back and. Uh, it, it feels quite vivid at times, and he, he, he's a particularly wonderful example of that. Oh, it's interesting because a couple of weeks ago we were talking to Barry Malsberg on this podcast, who has this astonishing memory for not only which story appeared in which issue of Fantastic Universe in 1954, but who agented this story. He has an astonishing memory. Earlier this evening I was talking to uh, uh, Fred Pohl's wife, and Fred is writing, he's revising um, his memoir, The Way the Future Was. Uh, and he has the same kind of memory of incredible detail of what life was like as a working writer in the late 40s and, and, and early 50s in this case, or going back to the early 40s. And I've always thought that's maybe, that, that, that's a gift because uh, you can describe what it was like to read the, um, oh, The Princess of, Oh, let's say to read the Lost World, and then to a few years later come across the Poison Belt and realize that it was something of a disappointment. And I remember reading those books, but I have no idea of the sequence in which I read them or or, or what I thought of them at the time. I thought I thought they were all pretty cool. Uh, I thought the Poison Belt was kind of a it, it, it was it was a bait and switch. It didn't pay yeah, off. Yeah. I mean, when I reread them, and um, you know, as an adult, my my views of the books changed. I mean, some of it comes through with the Lost World and the Poison Belt, and that um, the Lost World I simply thrilled to as a kid. When I reread it as a, as, a, as an adult, um, I found it both very funny uh, at, at, at many places and and puzzling. The certain attitudes of the book. Uh, and were were very strange that, that you you know that um, Conan Doyle was a was a real sympathizer to uh, the the plight of uh, 
of the oppressed people, of African Americans, of the yeah. Africans themselves. And yet he has this, these grotesque caricatures in the book of both um, of, a, of a black uh, servant of the uh, expedition and of uh, some of the, of the cavemen. And yet then he'll suddenly turn around and have have this passage where he compares them to uh, um, you know, uh, the Israelites uh, by the waters of Babylon mourning their lost glory. And mm-hmm. you, you, you have the sense that he was unsure about how he wanted to present certain aspects of the book, whether they were to be taken seriously, philosophically, comically. And he was, he was, that there was, there, I, I think, a certain not quite perfect control under, uh, about the tone that he wanted to achieve there. Um, don't go into this very much in my book, but it, it, I do mention it. Whereas in the, in, in the Poison Belt, what I had objected to as a kid, I remember, was it was so talky. They, you know, these guys get together. It's the end of the world. They all bring their little canisters of oxygen to live on for a day yeah. or so. And they sit around and talk as though they're at uh, the symposium with Plato and Socrates about the meaning of life. Which is, of course, what one would do. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, living what was, you know, they thought your last year, uh, day on, on Earth. But as a kid, you know, I wanted them to, you know, discover, you know, I don't know, aliens, and, you know, coming down into the poison belt to try and take over the Earth or something, something exciting, rather than this philosophical uh, speculation about life, death, and the cosmos. Now, however, I thought it was it was terrific stuff. I liked that very much, and I didn't mind the fact that we had the uh, we were undercut at the end by having uh, it be not in fact uh, the end of civilization, but in fact uh, catalepsy, and everyone was just asleep for a day, mm-hmm. and they woke up and took up their tasks again. But what remains with you, of course, when you read the book, and then we look back, is like. Um, are these 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 powerful scenes of of the countryside, of the, you know, the birds falling out of the trees, of of children around in the schoolyards lying on the ground, of really this this sense of this quietness that has descended upon upon the earth. These are these are these are powerful images of of the sort that you know crop up in that in early science fiction so often in the in kind of in the midst of other stories. Uh, in the way that uh, what we remember uh, of, of you know the time machine is beyond the, the Eli and the Morlocks are these these haunting images of of you know of of Earth's last gasp before before you know, you know the suns die and right. uh, you know, everything is is gone down to a, a terminal beach um, and. You know, these these I would have appreciated as much as a, as a boy as I do now, and uh, and, and to see how, how how influential in some ways these 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 sorts of uh, images have become for us. Um, are you iconic? Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Shields, the Purple Cloud is another kind of iconic. Yeah, uh, exactly. Is yeah, this this Really, kind of unpleasant undertone of misogyny and racism in a lot of these stories. Well, you yeah, to... you do. What it, what it, but, but what it was interesting. I mean, I talked to mentioned this kind of when having just read these first John Carter books. Uh, mm-hmm. People of Mars are all um, well. There's there's sort of these sort of strange reptilian tharks, but the other peoples though, the are 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 black and yellow and white. 
and uh, they and red, uh, and they're basically humans. Uh, but you know, despite the, you know, and uh, and Burroughs writing in nineteen twelve talks about the black people as the most beautiful of them all. And he goes. Yeah. He has several senses about their noble features and their, their beauty. They they turned out to be you know flawed and in some in lots of ways. But the 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 the, 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 the group that's prevent, presented as the most loathsome and repulsive are the whites. <laughs> These holy ferns, as they're supposed to have been, were in fact cannibals. And um, it, you know this this was this was unexpected to me. I mean, uh, for me, and that. Uh, uh, you, I wouldn't have, you know, particularly since John Carter himself is supposed to be a Confederate soldier, or yeah. is a Confederate soldier, and yet, um, Burrow, you know, in, in Tarzan, of course, there there are lots of, of, of problems with the Africans there, but you don't see that in these John these John Carter books, and uh, I mean, when, once you start getting into the issues of of, of of race, it becomes well, everything becomes incredibly complicated back then, and. And for, for modern readers, of course, we 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 try to be be wary of, of presentism, of reading our own under you know views and uh, convictions and uh, uh, back into the past and trying to be understanding and uh, of, of of context. But of course, where how, where you draw the line on these these matters is, is going to differ. You know, I'm not black, so I you know I'm probably a lot more easygoing about some of this than if I were black or. Or in the case of other, you know, kinds of books, if I was Jewish or if I was uh, Native American or what have you. But um, I mean, fundamentally, I do believe that um, you just have to, um, you know, except for really, really <laughs> unforgivable. Things. You have to just say, well, this is the way the world was. And uh, you know, I'm I was raised Catholic, but I don't go to ballistic when people talk about papists and Renaissance drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just what it is. My, my my grandfather was a Cossack, and as a friend of mine says, for the Jews, the Cossacks are always coming. You know, but you know that was that was that was then. <laughs> it's the first line of a poem by a poet named Linda Paston. And excuse me. I was going to say I have an odd theory about. Uh, it's not a theory; it's a conceit about a princess of Mars or under the moons of Mars. Um, and uh-huh. uh, it, it may have to do with racial attitudes, because certainly the beginning, and I gather this is preserved in the movie John Carter, that the beginning of the princess of Mars deals with a Confederate soldier in Arizona being trapped in a cave by a group of hostile Indians. It's a classic engines versus soldiers scenario. And my theory okay. is this. My theory is that that scene, the opening of a princess of Mars, or under the moons of Mars, could represent the moment at which the Western gave way to science fiction. There's an essay by Borges called um, From Allegories to Novels, in which he talks about Chaucer translating, I think, a line of Boccaccio, translating an allegorical line, um, treachery with hidden weapons, to the smiler with the knife beneath the cloak. And he sees that as the moment in which allegories gave way to what we began to think of later centuries later as the modern novel. And I'm wondering if Burroughs was seeing something of the same thing going on. At the beginning of The Princess of Mars, it's like the Western is dead. Let's go somewhere else. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, that, that's that's a that's a pretty persuasive, uh, you know, uh, 
at least theory to begin with. I don't know. I mean, I, um, certainly there was, I mean, Burroughs himself had served as in, in the cavalry and had spent a lot of time out west, so he was interested in that, and he would, in fact, write some books in that background beyond that. But, um, right. um, I mean, there is, there is a, there are obvious parallels between the, the people he first meets on Mars, John Carter meets on Mars, the Tharks and the Apaches. Uh, in, the, in the way they are described, so there's analogs. What puzzled me uh, uh, when I when I read the book was, you know, you recall he goes into this cave, and he somehow overcome, and he finds himself kind of paralyzed um, after he hears some sort of mysterious laughter in the back in the back of the cave mm-hmm. in the darkness that he can't see, and there's smoke. And then he's standing outside his body as sort of a um, astral projection. And then eventually he goes to Mars and kind of gets another body. Um, for a moment there, you know, I, I was wondering when I was reading the book whether you could read the entire novel as a dream uh, in the way that so many of the Gothic novels turned out to be, you know, and The Awoken was only a dream or it wasn't really real. Um, and... Later, at the end of the book, we discover that he's in the cave of some sort of a witch who has been doing something with the bodies of other people and hasn't quite gotten to him for some reason, although supposedly 10 years have passed. Um, but that, that flame of the cave, the witch, the, the astral projection, what is actually happening to the body, is, 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 is very puzzling. It's one of the... the Two, the other great puzzle, of course, is why and how and what it means that John Carter seems to be immortal. Or if not quite immortal, he says he has no memory of his childhood. He seems to have been, uh, you know, he, he's ageless. Um, from you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who supposedly has the manuscript, sees him at different times and he doesn't change. Um, of course, on Mars, everyone lives to be a thousand years. So the one explanation has been that he has to be long-lived in order to have a reasonable <laughs> marriage with Dejah Thoris uh, and have lots of adventures. But the initial business, you think you see some kind of, of you know, alien already? Is he, um, you know, he thinks he's only human? Is he a, a, some sort of avatar of the wandering Jew? Is he uh, the eternal champion of Mike Warcock? What? Why is it that he's, he's, he doesn't have any, any, any childhood? He doesn't have any, any past and he doesn't age. Um, I, I, I imagine he, the, the, the Boyles didn't really think very profoundly about this. He just decided to do it and then he was stuck with it. But, um, why it still is one of those, those tantalizing questions, and perhaps more uh, better scholars than I have have, have have some answers for them. I don't know. I mean, maybe he gave but, permission. Uh, but I like your idea of the, the shift over from the Western. Um, although you do have, you know, you had before then, you had all these these late 19th century penny dreadfuls, you know, of, you know Frank Reed and his uh, electric steam robot of the prairies kind of books. So you had sort of a combination of westerns and new technology, um, but um, this this is a much more uh, you know a, a nice example of it is a, you know a compact one of of the shift saying 
well, goodbye adventure on Earth. It's it's had its day. Now we're going to do we're going to do interplanetary adventure. And he went to the he went to Venus. He went to the Moon. He went to the interior of the Earth. It was like it was like we we are. It's, it's almost like the Turner thesis. You know, we have reached California, so now we've got to find new frontiers wherever they are. Right. Yeah. You know, the frontier thesis moved out into space. You know. But we're running out of uh, Jonathan. Are we running out of time? We're towards the end of our period, so it might be sort of apropos to sort of to wind up to thank you, Michael, for joining us and for dis- discussing Burroughs and and Doyle and Walsh in the way you have. It's been very interesting, and I'm very grateful for you just uh, making yourself available to talk yeah. with us today. Well, uh, I'm, 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 as I said, it's been a, you know an honor for me, a pleasure to. To, to chat with both uh, you and Gary at the same time, and uh, um, you know, I look forward to to seeing all of you or both of you at least at uh, some convention soon, and I'll see Gary next week. I'll see you so, next uh, week. I'll be in for Toronto for World Fantasy if you can make that. I will be at Toronto for World Fantasy. Yes, I've, I've agreed to um, do the um, the interview or public conversation, whatever it is, with John Clute. So I will be oh, excellent. for that. That would be so, really. uh, yeah, I like Toronto. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Clute turned his back on his, his his hometown, but I've always thought Toronto was a great place. I, I, I like Toronto as well, but uh, and, and our friend Peter Howells is putting this together, and Liz Hand is the other guest. I get to be the master of ceremonies at this. So, um, well, that, that's we right. For, yes, you, you, yeah. you, 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 they, they, you know, as my father used to say. You know, when you get a good horse, you work them. And they've obviously found that they have, you know, that Gary Wolf is the man when it comes to, uh, you know, conducting ceremonies with uh, dash and a plum. Makes me feel a little bit like Guy Lombardo, but I guess I'll have to. <laughs> um, there you but anyway, yeah, we'll all be together in Toronto then, and that'll be fun. And again, thank you for joining us. This is uh, okay. Well, well I I'll, guess I will I'll hang up here. then and uh, wish you well, and uh, um, I look forward to. Uh, to hearing the podcast sometime. Okay. Okay. Good night.